Well, as you're seating yourselves, you can go ahead and open to John chapter 12. Um, I will just tell you right off the bat, I have been in a world of hurt about this lesson. Um, I had too many snow days to choose whether I was going to prepare for my lesson or clean up after Christmas. <laughs> and my husband and I do all the cleaning together, so I realized if I keep preparing for the lesson, he'll clean up from Christmas. And that's what happened. And then last, late last week, I started panicking because I had stacks and stacks of notes, and I had read and read and read, and none of it made any sense and to me, and certainly wouldn't have made any sense to you. And I started saying, Lord, Lord, what am I going to do? Um, and as I pled my sorrow before him, I was reminded of Martha in that famous uh, dinner, for those of you who've studied this, if you've ever, if you're a woman and you've been in the church, you've read this and you've heard this preached to you, Martha is preparing the dinner and Jesus and his disciples are there, this is in Luke 10, and she is just panicking and she's got too much going on and she's anxious about the preparations. And she startlingly goes to Jesus. Now Jesus was saying to me what he says to Martha, which is, please, please, you don't have to do so much. He's very gentle. And he was saying to me, just keep it simple, keep it simple. And that's what he's saying to Martha. And I realized in our lesson today and in last week's lesson in chapter 11, we hear that Martha and Mary and Lazarus are good friends of Jesus. And I was like, there's no proof of that. Here's the proof of that. This is what Martha says. She goes to Jesus. She says, Lord, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has let me do the work by myself? Tell Mary to help me. And when I read that, I thought, um, if Jesus were at my house with the disciples and my sister was not helping me, I would have smilingly gone in the other room, grabbed her little headscarf, <laughs> lifted her up, smiled at Jesus, and walked her into the kitchen and given her a piece of mind. We know that Mary and Jesus, not are the only are they good, I mean Martha and Jesus and Mary, they're not just good friends, they're family. Because she sounds like a pouty little sister. And she is asking him, first of all she's insulting him, don't you love me? Can you say that to your siblings? Of course you can. And so we hear this familial, loving relationship. So if you want proof, and we're going to look at another dinner with Martha and Mary right now, but if you want proof that Jesus loves these people and that they love him and that they are like family, not just friends, go to Luke 10. But what Jesus said to me was, page, page, only one thing is needed. And that's the one thing we're going to do today. And that is, we're going to look at Jesus. A lot of times when we study scripture, we start thinking, how can this help me know Jesus better? How can this change me? Today, this is a jam-packed chapter. It's a very important chapter. And we're going to look at Jesus because that's what Mary did. She chose the better thing. And Martha should have just made a pot of soup, sliced the bread, and poured the wine. Um, and, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to keep it simple, but it's dense. So please hang in there. Um, my heart is full. My mind is feeling a little empty, and it's not connected to my mouth. So um, we're going to start with this second dinner. Now, to understand what's going on at this dinner, we're going to have to briefly go back to the story, the event in the previous chapter, which is the raising of Lazarus. That really is the context 
4, chapter 12. What happens is Jesus and the disciples are finally having the, especially the disciples, the ministry of their dreams. The end of chapter 10, John tells us that they have fled Jerusalem and gone east of the Jordan, where John the Baptist, who was for many of them their mentor, that they are there, people are coming to them. People are being baptized. Jesus and the disciples are having a wonderful, fruitful ministry. John tells us many people are believing in Jesus. And in the midst of this, Jesus gets a message. And this is what it says. It's from Martha and Mary. Lord, the one you love is sick. That's all it says. It doesn't ask him to come. And in fact, when I was thinking about this, Jesus could have healed Lazarus from the Jordan River. Because he doesn't have to go, as we know, to heal someone into their presence. And so they say, Lord, the one you love is sick, and surely he does love all three of them. Now, Jesus has a complicated conversation with the disciples. And the disciples, frankly, don't want to leave. They don't want to go back to Bethany. Bethany's two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be arrested and killed if they go back there. And they're having their ministry moment. And so they don't want to go. And Jesus says, we're going. And then Jesus shocks the disciples because he says, Lazarus is dead. They can't believe it. They know Jesus loves Lazarus. They love Lazarus. What do you mean? You didn't heal him? And then Jesus says, it was for your sake I'm glad I didn't heal him because we are going to go to him now. What has happened between Lord, the one you love, is sick and Lazarus is dead and now we're going? Two things have happened, or two messages. The Father has said to Jesus, the Son, wait, wait. And he has said to the Son, your hour has come. And Jesus now, from that intervening father-son decision. Wait. Your hour has come. Now he goes. When Jesus arrives at Martha and Mary's, I think he feels hurt. Martha and Mary both say to him, Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. And he hears the people there murmuring. Now there's a and maybe a large crowd of Jewish people who are both friends of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and also traditional mourners, which was consistent with the culture at that time. Um, so there would be people there when someone died for a traditional period of time. And these people have their role, these supporters of the family who are grieving, of wailing and crying. But Jesus hears them murmuring, he healed a total stranger, a man blind from birth, but he did not heal Lazarus, even though Martha and Mary told him Lazarus was dying. These are hurtful comments. Jesus understands them, though. And when I'm reading these, I'm reminded of Psalm 22, where David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, this is what Jesus is going to say on the cross. This idea that my expectation hasn't or isn't being met, Lord. You say you love me, but where were you? Why didn't you come? Why didn't you heal? You didn't even have to come. Um, and Martha gives the response that David also gives in Psalm 22. Martha says, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. But Jesus experiences the emotions of disappointment, and he understands, and he understands this tension between where were you and I trust you. He holds those in tension. 
as do we. John says that Jesus experiences at this time as they go towards the tomb more than simply an emotional sadness or regret or hurt. Um, he knows, Jesus knows that he has the power to heal Lazarus. And he loves Lazarus. And he knows that he waited because his hour has come. And he knows that it's more important that he wait and not heal and his loved ones go through this grief and suffering because his purpose is to glorify the Father and save the world. And he knows that if he, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he is going to the cross because that will be the final sign that the Pharisees and the Sadducees can handle and will permit. So he is there to raise Lazarus and he is there to begin his journey to the cross. And that's what he does. He, John says, knowing all this, is so troubled and he's angry. He's angry, actually the word that uh, is used here in John, by John. He's angry, and you can imagine the com complicated anger that his friends have had to go through this, that darkness in the world has separated him from all of us, all the people whom he loves, and that his hour is at hand, and he, is under, he knows what that means. So he's angry, and he's hurt, and he's grieving. And they go to the tomb, and the mourners are there wailing. And Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha flinches, but she has it done. And Jesus says in a louder voice, Lazarus, come out. And you can imagine, or maybe you can't, it's hard to, the shock of everyone to see Lazarus come up the ladder the wailing of these Jewish professional mourners and friends, I think it turns to screams of disbelief and shouts and people are falling down and some of them are falling down at Jesus' feet and there's Lazarus. The power of God has gotten him out of that tomb on his feet standing. He is alive and he looks like a mummy. And there is then, I think, complete awestruck silence as they look at him. And Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And I, I have just this image of Martha trying to explain to Lazarus why he's not dead. <laughs> why he's alive. The last time they comforted one another on his sickbed, his deathbed. So as that is happening, we don't know of anything else that happens between the family, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Jesus. And I suspect it's because Jesus and the disciples go away quickly. Some of those people who are there, the professional mourners, they run to the temple. And they tell the chief priests, and they tell anyone that they can find, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the tomb. Lazarus was sick for a while, and he died, and he was in the tomb for four days. And now he's alive, and, and he's well. He's not sick, and Jesus did it. We were there. We saw it with our own eyes. And they create the biggest stir that has happened in Jerusalem since Jesus was baptized at the river by John the Baptist. So Jesus and his disciples go in hiding and they go near the desert until the Passover feast is at hand. Jesus always, and his disciples, as is required for all Jewish people, goes to 
Jerusalem for the Passover. And so they leave the desert and they start on their way to Jerusalem. They have to go through Bethany. And now we're going to start at chapter 12, verse 1. And I hope you will indulge me. I'm not going to read the scripture, which I normally would do because there's so much in this chapter. I'm going to describe it. Um, and I'm going to quote the, the, the words of Jesus. So they go to this dinner, and the whole purpose of the dinner is to honor Jesus. As far as we know, he has not been with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He hasn't seen Lazarus. Last time we saw Lazarus, he looked like a mummy. And they stop for this dinner to honor Jesus. It's not at Martha's house. It's at the house of this man that um, we're told in Mark is called Simon the leper. We don't know why he's called that. Perhaps Jesus healed him of leprosy. But he is hosting, and we read that Martha is serving the meal. Um, there's no sign in this passage of sibling jealousy or that she's anxious or she's unhappy or complaining. She is serving the meal. And Lazarus is sitting at the table with Jesus and the disciples and Simon and whoever else the guest might be. Um, and Mary's not mentioned here because she would not be seated at the table. At that time, women would not be seated at the table. Um, but there is Jesus, and I can imagine the gratitude. Martha and Mary look at that table, and they look at Jesus, their Lord, and they look at Lazarus, their beloved brother, both alive in the flesh having a meal and the conversation flows and people are laughing and Martha is serving. Um, it's a warm, beautiful dinner and to imagine. And I think Martha is in full accord of what happens next. Mary has brought with her a very special item. She has brought this jar container that's made out of alabaster and it contains really her only possession that she personally owns in her life. And it is a jar of what is known as nard. And I've become a big fan of nard. You can actually get it on Amazon, but don't want to do that right now. And I haven't ordered it yet. But um, she has this jar and she breaks the seal and as soon as she does, and she's standing before Jesus, this pungent fragrance starts even wafting out of the flask. And the other gospel writers tell us that she takes that and anoints Jesus' head, which would be very appropriate. Often at that time, if you're having a meal in honor of a person, you would anoint that person's head. But an anointing oil would be a little bit. Mary has a pint. A pint. I think that's two cups, right? Okay, I don't cook very much. But anyway, she's got, she's got a whole pint of pure nard. And she is using that to anoint Jesus. Now, nard, you can't get it at that time except in India. It comes from a plant that is not grown in Palestine. It is so expensive, and it's usually because of its expense mixed with some other perfumes or spices or something. She has a pure pint of nard. Um, and I learned this, and I thought it was so interesting, that nard is mentioned in the Old Testament. In the book of Song of Songs, songs or Song of Solomon, um, it's the perfume that the bride wears when she goes and stands before the king at his table. And that is her bridegroom. And when she does that, she wears the perfume known as nard. And the fragrance of nard on her is so pungent. And so beautiful that it blesses the king. And he is 
filled with pleasure at his bride and at this beautiful fragrance. And also Nard was part of a Jewish maiden, a young Jewish girl's dowry. Usually at some point in her childhood, her parents would give her some nard. Maybe not very much, depending on how much they could afford. Maybe it was mixed. Mary's parents had given her a pint of pure nard. And the purpose of that is that she will save it for her wedding day. And when her groom, her bridegroom, comes to her home to take her to his home, she will present him with her perfume, with her nard, to bless him and to please him. And so all this is going on. And Mary opens her flask. She anoints Jesus' head. And then John enlarges this story. John says, and it, I think it's because she pours it all out, that she now pours it on his feet. She pours it out, all of it. And the fragrance, we're told, now fills the entire house. It wafts from Jesus' body. And from his body, the entire house is filled with the fragrance of Mary's gift. This is so shocking to everyone. First of all, only a Gentile servant would ever be asked to clean a guest's feet, which they often did. But for Mary to do this, and for her to kneel before Jesus, and for her then to do what is most shocking of all, she takes down her hair, and she begins to wipe the oil, massage it into Jesus' feet. Um, you can imagine, every conversation stops, every eye is turned to Mary, and these men and anyone else who might be in the room are gasping such extravagance this is the the fragrance is bliss but but a whole pint pure nard maybe the life of lazarus is worth this but look what she's doing she's wiping his feet with her hair don't look don't look i mean this is absolutely a breathtaking moment. And there's silence until one man speaks. And it's Judas Iscariot, we're told by John. And now every eye turns to Judas. And Judas, everyone knows, is the treasurer for the ministry. And he controls the money. And Judas has done the math. Mary has chosen to waste a year's wages on this fleeting act. And at Passover, that was the time especially where you gave money to the poor. Because he's thinking the poor don't have honorary dinners and they don't have a year's wages. And Judas is critical of Mary and says, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? If Mary, he's thinking, isn't gonna keep her nard, dishonoring her parents, she should have sold it and given the money to the poor. And then another voice is heard. Jesus speaks up and he defends Mary vehemently. He says, Mary and Martha and Lazarus and you two, Judas, anyone in this room can give money to the poor at any time. He says, leave her alone. And he says, she did what she could. This is in the other, um, in Mark. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She's done a beautiful thing to me. And John tells us this very important statement that Jesus makes. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. It was intended that she should save it. 
and she was saving it for the, to prepare me for burial. Now Mary knows that she's poured out personally the only, the only thing she personally owns, and she wants to express her devotion to the Lord. But she doesn't fully understand what Jesus is saying, and I don't think anyone in the room does. First of all, there is no gospel at this time. And that is what Jesus says. But Jesus understands Mary is not giving him a gift as a last-minute gesture of worship. Mary saved this perfume and poured it out at this specific time and place. This abundant, expensive, overpowering, fragrant perfume, he says, was intended. It was intended before the foundation of the cosmos by his Father to anoint the Son in preparation of his burial. Now, living people are not buried, and dead people are the only people who are buried. And dead people are anointed before they are buried. That those spices and those perfumes that are used on a dead body, they will mask the odor of decay. It reminded me of the incense in the temple. The incense will create a beautiful aroma and mask the odor of the sacrifices of the animals that have to be made to atone for the sins of the people. So Mary's act is intended by the Father because the Father and the Son know he has agreed to die. He is going to the cross. This is one of the most holy, beautiful, meaningful gifts anyone will ever give recorded here in Scripture. And it's deeply connected to the gospel. And it happens because the father is honoring his son at the time that they know he is preparing to die. Now today, we read the Song of Songs, and we read it as a gospel text. Um, we understand it as describing the intimate relationship between Jesus, the king, our and we understand that the bride is the church, the body of Christ. And we understand that our love for him, the love for our bridegroom, is so welling up within us that we will give him all that we have. The only thing we have personally, that is our lives. And that's what Mary's gift represents. Um, the fragrance of our gift is the spirit, and that fragrance will fill the house. It will fill the temples of worship, our bodies now, our churches, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, our cities, our world. And other people are going to smell that and say, what is that? It's so beautiful and pungent, and they're going to want to come to the table. They're going to want to come to the place where we are pouring out our lives for our bridegroom. So Mary's outrageous act, I see it as a theological exclamation point here, because now we're going to turn the corner, and we're going to read about something that Jesus alone knows at this point is going to happen. The next day, Jesus and the disciples get up, and I think about this now as Jesus' farewell tour. Uh, they always go to the Passover feast, but this time, Jesus tells two disciples to go to a village nearby, and they're going to find donkey and her colt and they're going to find them tied up together and Jesus says this is where they'll be go right there if anyone asks you what you're doing when you untie them say the master needs them 
they obey Jesus, they go, they get the donkey, they get her colt, and they bring them back, and for sure they have to explain the master needs them, and then whoever tied them there says, be on your way. Um, and I'm assuming they do bring them back. But, um, but they bring them to Jesus, and Jesus takes the colt who's never been ridden. It's not the mom, it's the little, it's the foal, it's the colt. And they put a cloak or two on him, and Jesus sits on this animal, and they start walking to Jerusalem. In the past, Jesus would enter secretly. He would just pop up in the temple. Um, he wasn't a person, we are told, who was noticeably tall or handsome or whatever. He was just a common-looking person, and they would, he and the disciples would sneak in. This is so new and so different because now he is riding on this donkey and they're approaching, approaching Jerusalem. What does this donkey mean? Well, Jesus' prophet, Zechariah, had said in chapter 9, he had said, as Jesus instructed, Rejoice greatly. Shout, O Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And later, Zechariah says, The Lord their God will save them on that day, the flock of his people. But there's more, which I have learned in days of snowy study. Jesus is telegraphing an additional message here. It's a messianic message. King David rode on a donkey. And he would ride into the city when he was king as a symbol of his peace coming, of his humility. And the people loved that. And when King David was dying and there was a, uh, an argument and a, a near war about who was going to be his successor, King David took his son Solomon, and in secret he had him anointed, and he proclaimed him as the king who would succeed him. And we read in 1 Kings that King David put Solomon on King David's donkey. And Solomon rode into the city on this donkey of his father, the king. And the people were told, and those who were against Solomon were told, David has made Solomon the king. And the people came pouring out and were singing and shouting. And In fact, um, the writer of 1 Kings tells us that the ground shook because it was so loud. And they were shouting and they were saying, Long live King Solomon who comes to fulfill the throne of David. The angel Gabriel, remember what Gabriel said to Mary before she even conceived Jesus. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of the Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus knows that when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those who study the scriptures and know the scriptures, when they see him riding in on a donkey, they will know that he is sending a messianic message, that he is proclaiming, it is I, the one who has come to claim the throne of David. And when he writes in, the people go ballistic. And they have this tradition of waving palm branches in a celebration like this. And they start spreading their cloaks on the ground. And they are starting to shout. And as Jesus comes around the corner where he can see the city of Jerusalem, you would think he would be ecstatic or in awe or looking forward. You know what he does? We are told in Luke, he breaks down and weeps. He weeps. He wept at the tomb. He was irate. He was troubled. He weeps. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. 
but now it is hidden from your eyes. These are the words that Jesus gave the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 22. And he goes on, and he's describing des destruction as is described in Isaiah, but he also knows that in 70 years, John the Apostle will still be living. In 70 years, Rome, Rome will put down a zealot uprising in Jerusalem. The temple will be destroyed. The city will be destroyed. And Jesus says and mourns and weeps because, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And so we see again Jesus' heart, his mourning, his sorrow. At the same time, he's receiving his welcome as the Messiah. Now is the time of salvation. And the people start yelling and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save, oh save, save now. And then some begin singing the Hallel, which is the traditional hymn of Passover, and it's in Psalm 118. Blessed is the King of Israel. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The shouting and the singing are deafening. The crowd is jubilant. And Jesus is accepting this. He's accepting and acknowledging their praise. And some of the Pharisees who are in the crowd say to Jesus as they listen to this, they, they are demanding, Jesus, you must make them stop making these messianic proclamations. I don't think they would have cared if they were just saying, woohoo, look who's here, it's Jesus. It's the messianic singing of the Hallel and the announcement that he is the Messiah. And Jesus says to them, I tell you, if these people keep quiet, the stones are going to start shouting. And I think the Pharisees look around and they look at those rocks and they realize that might happen. And they say nothing more. Now these people, yikes. Oh my goodness. Okay, so these people have just come to the Passover feast from Galilee, many of them. And they see their Jesus on the big stage. And when they go into the city, people say, who is this? And they say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. Nazareth and Galileans, they were always snubbed by the people. So this is a big day for Galileans. And it should be a big day for the disciples. But you know what? The disciples, we don't know, but we think they were clueless. And they are looking at the crowd. And they are looking at Jesus except, except these cries. And you can imagine their whiplash. Um, they might as well be wearing targets on their tunics because they know Jesus is going to be arrested and we're going to be arrested. What are we going to do? And they're starting to think, what are we going to do when he's arrested? Or what am I going to do when he's arrested? And so the Pharisees meet with now the Sadducees, and they say, the whole world is going to him. And they come up with a strategy. First of all, they say, we have to kill him. We have to get Rome involved. We've always tried to keep Rome out of it. We will get Rome involved. And Jesus comes into the city knowing that this is what they're going to do. And he agrees with them. He will die. And they say, he will be killed because the whole world is going after him and he is accepting his messianic purpose. Jesus now gives us his farewell address. There are Gentiles who've come here. The whole world has come. And they want to see Jesus. And Jesus accepts them and wants them to be there. And so he says, do you want to see me? And then he gives them this metaphor. How are they going to see him? He says, 
Think about this. In nature, a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, and it can't do anything unless it dies. If it stays in the farmer's bag with all the other seeds, it will do nothing but be a seed. But if it falls and dies to the ground, it will germinate, and it will produce more seeds. And those seeds will fall to the ground and die and germinate. And there will be an eternal cycle of death and life, death and life. Now he's speaking about his own death here, of course, that he will die to create life, to create the seed, the body of Christ. But he's also using this metaphor to try to show them and to show us that if we wish to see him, we have to follow him. And if we wish to follow him, he is going to, to death. And we have to spiritually die as well. You have to fall to the ground. And you have to submit your will to the Father as Jesus did. And you must die. Um, he says, if you love your life, you will lose it. And if you hate the world, you will live. And this is also something he says to them because that's the way he has always lived. You have to stop clinging to your life if you love, if you're satisfied with your life, if you're satisfied being just a seed, then that is all you're going to have at your death. You will be the person that you love and you will have the life that you have clung to. But if you hate the darkness in your life, that's what he means here. The darkness is the world. Then you will hate the fear and hate the desire that I don't want to change. I want to keep being a seed. You will not want to deal with the darkness in your life. And until you deal with the darkness in your life and put it to death by the grace of God. You know, you think about being a seed. God is going to put you in the ground of his word. And God is going to give you the living water. And God is going to give you the sunlight. All this is grace. You don't have to do anything and submit and say I want to change I don't want to be this kind of seed who simply loves herself but again we see as Jesus is talking to the people and trying to explain this really difficult concept we see his anguish again Jesus says now my heart is troubled and what shall I say father Save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the Father's voice thunders and is heard by John and those standing there and all of us for eternity. And this is what the Father says. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. Does the voice of the Father change anyone and cause them to believe in Jesus at this time? No. Why does the Father thunder and speak? He is feeling the anguish of his son. He is feeling the anguish in his heart. Once again, it is intended to bless Jesus, to bless his son, to honor his son. The Father's glory is Jesus' sole purpose. It is who Jesus is. He knew no other earthly life than dying to the darkness and living in the light. And he chose to do that, and it was not easy. And it was not a cakewalk. And it was not, oh, I'm the son of God. I can do this with a flip of the switch. No. Every moment, Jesus gave God the glory by rejecting the darkness. And he did that in an unbroken, continuous unity with the Father. 
and that is why he was the light. The Father was glorified, and they were never, never not in unity. That is Jesus' earthly life. And now Jesus knows that I will not vary. That is who I am, and that is how I live. Now his hour has come, and this is what Jesus is facing. It's the greatest irony in the history of the world, because Jesus will only do the Father's will, as hard as it is, as hard as it has been his entire life. And now the Father's will is that he die and die for us. He will have to take on the dark. He has never, he has always defeated the darkness to the glory of his Father. And now the Father says, your love for me, and if you will do my will, my will is that you embrace the darkness and take on the darkness. Because if you don't, no one else can. No one else can do this, and no one else understands the horror of it like Jesus. And so he and the Father, you see this um, throughout these passages, his anguish from the time he left and went to Bethany to raise Lazarus. And you see the Father's honoring him, encouraging him, um, speaking aloud to bless him. And so the intensity of Jesus' commitment to do the will of the Father and the supreme worth of him in his unity with the Father, even knowing what lies ahead. The unity of the Father and the Son is central for Jesus' earthly life. The center of who he is will be wholly severed on the cross. The perfect Lamb of God will take on himself the sin of the world because that is the Father's will. And he will do it to the glory of God. Often we think, Jesus died for me. He died for the Father's glory. And because of that, he died for me. And he died for you. <laughs> so the people shout, Hosanna and save us. And Jesus says, look, I'm here now. You have the light now. You need to follow me now. And people don't. Um, I totally get this. Um, he says some of the Jewish leaders believe, but they don't tell anyone because they're fearful of the Pharisees putting them out of the synagogue. I don't look down on these people. Do you know what that means? I understand. Think about how you at times have misunderstood the life of following Jesus. These people, if they publicly choose Jesus, they are losing their whole community. They are losing their whole culture, the whole world that defines them. They will probably lose their job. They will probably have no wages. Their children won't be able to marry the people they want their children to marry. Their children will not go to the schools, at least their sons will not be permitted to go to the schools that they want to and that they want their sons to and it, it's just for them somewhat inconceivable they love their lives but there's a reason they love their lives and in comparison look at these Galileans look at Jesus who doesn't even have a house who has no place to lay his head who travels around with these men who really, frankly, no one respects. Um, it's too small a life. It's too hard. I believe he is the Son of God. I believe him, but I can't do it. And we live on the side of this side of the cross. We know Martha and Mary and the disciples and Lazarus, and we sit at the table with them. These people have not done that. They don't see the Jesus that we see. 
They don't see the bliss and the joy in the conversation, in the memories. They don't see the special meal which we have in remembrance of the sacrificial lamb of God. And so we need to appreciate that. And today we have the same situation. If people are rejecting our Lord and clinging to their lives, of course they are, because they don't know him. They don't know Martha and Mary. They don't know us. We have to invite them in to the table to sit with Jesus, to sit with Lazarus, who was dead and is now alive, to sit with you. You were dead and now you're alive. To sit with me, to sit to, with all those um, in the body of Christ. We have to invite them in, and we cannot judge. Jesus came to save, and that is what we are called to do if we are following him. Abundant life, it's really a misunderstood concept, I think. We tend to think, I like to think, abundant life means I'm going to get from Jesus more than things I love. It's going to be abundantly wonderful. And you know what this metaphor that Jesus uses, what he says about loving and your life and hating the darkness, what he's saying is abundant life is a reproducing life. It's more of me. It's more of the spirit, my spirit in you. It's more love. And the only way that is going to happen is if we die to this darkness within ourselves and choose to live by the light of our Savior. So to you, Lord, we can say thank you. We can say give us understanding. We can say show us yourself. Give us greater understanding of who we are and how we are to follow you and how we are to live. And may the Father be glorified. In your name, Jesus, we pray.